Hello, everybody. This is Rob Fredette with the podcast HodgePod, and I have a great guest today on my podcast. It's McCracken Poston Jr., who is a defense attorney in Georgia. McCracken has authored a book, Zenith Man, Death, Love, and Redemption in a Georgia Courtroom. This is a true crime story that will leave you saying, wow, after you read Zenith Man. It's about the state of Georgia versus Alvin Ridley. And this story has also been featured on Forensic Files, People Magazine, and other television crime shows. And as we're taping this today, Zenith Man goes on sale tomorrow, February 20th, and will be able to get purchased. And I have the author here, McCracken Poston Jr. you got a busy week coming up, and I appreciate you joining me on my podcast today. Thank you so much. (laughs) Well, well, it's my honor, Rob. Uh, I'll tell you, this is... uh, I've never written a book before, and the uh, the marketing of a book is uh, that is a deserves its own book. Yes, I bet it does. <laughs> I bet it does because you have you probably booked probably now through the end of probably the spring, March or April. I bet so. Um, I appreciate some time you've carved out for me, and uh, I read the book. I found it to be very fascinating. Uh, I felt like I was in the courtroom and in your talking to Alvin, but we're going to get into that. So uh, first of all, where are you? And uh, you're a criminal defense attorney, is that correct? That's correct. I'm in Ringgold, Georgia, which is just below Chattanooga, Tennessee. It's um, interesting. It's a, it was, I've grown up there. I was born in that county, Catoosa County. And, and uh, other than going off to law school and uh, college up in Chattanooga and then law school in Athens, Georgia, a brief stint as an intern in Washington. This is the only place I've ever lived. <laughs> wow. That's great. That's great. So this book here, you wrote this book. It's your first book. So talk about the case of Zenith man, Alvin Ridley, because I found him to be a fascinating person. Tell us about how you conceived of the book. Talk, we'll get into the case versus Alvin Ridley. Rob from, from January 15, 1999. And that evening, I first thought the ordeal I had been through was worthy of a book. That being said, I had never written a book before. Mm -hmm. And so I ended up basically giving the story away to anybody who would ask. Forensic Files, American Justice, People Magazine, The Washington Post, uh, NPR's Snap Judgment. I, I just wanted to tell the story. And because it, it is a an incredible story, I, I just didn't know if I could do it justice. It only was uh, about four years ago when I saw that someone had picked up on my giving away this story, mm-hmm. and they wrote a fictionalized account of it with different names of, of, <laughs> of the principals and a different location. And as angry as that made me, I was only angry at myself. So I'm actually thanking that author now for getting me off my butt and then putting me on my butt to write this thing. And so uh, I reached out to a, uh, a developmental editor in California named Bonnie Hearn Hill. And let me tell you, if you ever want to learn how to write, I'm going to will teach you everything you ever want to know about the publishing industry. And she she told me the tricks of, you know, the trade, so to speak. There um, there are some very traditional things you do in this industry and things you don't do. Uh, She suggested that she choose a curated list of potential agents, Mm -hmm. which was brilliant because I got an agent, Linda Connor, in New York in very short time. And then both of these ladies advised me on how to pitch this. Uh, the agent uh, showed how we were going to pitch this to the publishers. And we got uh, Michael Hamilton at Citadel, which is Kensington. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've never been happier with uh, working with this, this uh, bunch of uh, great professional women. Excellent. Excellent. So let's talk about the case of, of Alvin Ridley. So I found this book again to be fascinating. I felt like I was in the courtroom. I felt like I was 
at his house with you, went the way you were describing it in detail. So how did you get to know Alvin Ridley? Because there's a story behind that and also case that which you were representing him in trial. Well, Rob, I've known Alvin Ridley almost all of my life. He went to high school with my oldest sister. Uh, I was actually born uh, when they were in high school. and um, But I didn't know him well. Few people knew Alvin well. Uh, everybody assumed that there were some uh, that he was different. Uh, there seemed to be a, a lot of uh, informal accommodation for that uh, by some people in town. Um, my first memory of him, and I had to be reminded of this, this by a story that he told me during the representation. But I remember when I was about 13, I had worn the channel tuner knob off of our TV set, and I was just using pliers. But my... Uh, <laughs> father got Alvin Ridley to show up one Saturday with a new tuner knob that, that he had ordered for us. And he just appears in our living room. My mother had apparently <laughs> waved him on into the house from outside. So he kind of scared me at first. And I thought, what an odd character this is. But I remember I was watching wrestling and he impressed me that he had met Andre the Giant in Chattanooga at the Memorial Auditorium. And he told me what Andre the Giant told him he had for breakfast, which was <laughs> like, you know, outrageous number of eggs and, and bread. And and I remember telling my friends at school, I met this strange guy, but he knows Andre the Giant. <laughs> well, only years later, when I'm representing Alvin Ridley and we're having one of the first non-screaming con uh, conversations, and he mentions that he met Andre the Giant and told me what he had for breakfast. And I said, you've told me this before. You told me this before <laughs> decades ago when I was a kid because I went and bragged about it at school. And um, once we had a great deal of difficulty, Alvin was accused of keeping his wife locked in their basement for decades before killing her. In fact, nobody knew he had a wife that was currently in the community other than the the the, the older people. And they had thought, because Alvin would throw people off who would ask about her, they thought she had left years ago. Mm -hmm. And members of her own family thought she had died years ago. So it was extremely unusual. Alvin was a gadfly. He was a malcontent. He was litigious. He was suing everybody for a period of time. Um, and he just seemed to be crying out for, for help. So um, when this happened, I just happened to run into him like two days later. And then every day he seemed to be waiting on me to walk out of my office and he would meet me at the same mm -hmm. intersection. So about the third day I spoke to him and that just opened up a, a, a torrential uh, uh, emotional outburst. And I guess the, I had just lost a congressional race. I, I was back in my town after a decade in politics not in Congress, but in the state legislature. But my effort to elevate and go to Congress uh, was completely um, set back. Uh, I was defeated soundly by the incumbent congressman. And so uh, I was just uh, trying to figure out what I was going to do next. I'd also been through a divorce. It was a, it was a low time for me. And here's this guy that is basically stalking me and wanting to talk about his case, but not wanting to follow my advice, not wanting to make an appointment, not wanting to, you know, come into my office to talk about it. So slowly but surely, we started trying to meet and work together. But all he wanted to talk about was all this old civil litigation that he failed at uh, when he was uh, representing himself mm -hmm. and and uh, I, it just drove me crazy, Rob. Um, only years later, 
only three years ago, and this trial was 25 years ago, but only three years ago at the request of a juror from the case 25 years ago that I have Alvin tested and it was determined that he is on the autism spectrum, which now looking back, it makes so much sense. Mm-hmm. But 25 years ago, nobody was talking about the autism in adults. It was discussed about children, and there was a, a great uh, effort to find out what was causing it. Um, whether that's whether something is causing more of it or not is yet to be seen, but we have had people with autism in our culture since time began. And and some of our greatest contributors, it's now known, uh, were on the spectrum. I mean, we're all probably plotted out on a spectrum, uh, but the autism spectrum is a series of developmental disorders that is quite a quite a range. Like many people with autism, Alvin had a an ability to hyper focus on some things, and one was television repair. He was he is unassailed as the best picture tube TV repairman huh. <laughs> yes, that anybody that. has ever known. He he, and this was back when TVs were like furniture. There sometimes they were furniture. They, they were, were yeah. giant wooden cabinets. Uh, Alvin uh, laments today that uh, people's TV tear up today that it just goes to the dump. <laughs> directly there is no real tv repair anymore mm-hmm. but alvin had a shop he sold zenith as a brand hence the name of the book and um and here we had this situation where he's accused of doing these things well as it turned out um he didn't trust me so we had a great deal of difficulty he let everybody in his house that was law enforcement he would not let me in his house and so a year goes by of me advising him or directly representing him, and we've got about five weeks left before the trial, and I've got nothing. A couple of breaks, uh, tragic breaks, but breaks nonetheless. His wife had epilepsy. It was our theory from day one because he said she had a spell that night. So it was our theory from day one that she had a seizure and that something related to that seizure is what caused her death. So Alvin was challenged on that by the authorities who insisted that she must have been smothered or soft-strangled. They were basing this on the petechial hemorrhages, little tiny ruptured blood vessels around the eyes and the mouth and the soft tissue. And so that was the state of Georgia's position that this had to be asphyxiation or soft uh, or smothering. And that's the only thing that would explain these things. Well, in October, in September of 1998, the world lost perhaps the greatest female athlete that ever lived, Florence Griffith Joyner, Mm -hmm. or Flojo, as she was popularly called. In October, her autopsy was released just by luck and saw more details, but that was a seizure related death. And within days I had the autopsy of this uh, Olympic star Mm. and it very closely resembled the autopsy of Virginia Ridley. So here's the arguably most famous female athlete in the world and her autopsy, which we know was going to be a first class you know, we can't mess this one up autopsy. And then compared to the one of perhaps the least known woman in the world, and that was Virginia Ridley. And yet their their bodies, the placement of the petechia, it was very similar. So that was a tragic break that we got, but that's all I had. What I couldn't explain was why this woman was not seen for three decades. And her remaining family was ready to fill in the gaps with speculation that we think he's kept her against her will. 
Well, um, I still didn't have access to anything. I tried to get uh, into Alvin's house. I, I, I got a phone installed in his house mm-hmm. so that I could, uh, you know, communicate with him better. And I utilized that opportunity to show up at the house when the phone guy was going to be there, <laughs> hopefully to get in the house for the installation of the phone. But Alvin outsmarted me, had the phone installed on the porch <laughs> so that uh, so that I couldn't get access to the house. So what I also was beginning to learn was how transactional Alvin was, but I still didn't think anything of it. I just thought how odd that that this guy, what, what little cooperation I got from him was usually after I gave him something. And I still wasn't thinking about it on Thanksgiving of 1998 when my parents loaded me up with a turkey plate and said, Take this to Alvin Ridley. He doesn't have any wine this year. That's the last place I wanted to go on Thanksgiving, <laughs> but I went. And it was that act of kindness from my parents that caused him to told me to wait a minute. He went inside, then he came back and he said, come on in. And on Thanksgiving Day, 1998, I got to see the inside of that house for the first time. And while inside, I discovered a shrine that Alvin was making up for his wife. And they had been married 32 years. And on the wall were hundreds of writings that were just attached to the wall anywhere, anyway, in different ways that you can attach paper to a wall. And... I started looking closely at them and they were everything from poetry to just mundane. Here's what we had for supper on this date. And, and, and here's the cast of the TV series, the Waltons, just all written in a very distinct hand. And I asked Alvin, who wrote this? And he said, well, Virginia did. Well, the more excited I got about it, the more withdrawn he became (laughs) telling me that I could not have it because that's all he had left of her. So the next several days had me figuring out a way to convince Alvin to let me at least copy these items. In another room he led me to, there were stockpiles of her writings. Apparently they never threw anything away that she made, art, poetry. And Alvin seemed to be really grieving. And the thought that I would take them away from him really made him grieve even more. So I tried to convince him, as you as you read, uh, 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 by, by accident one day while Alvin was screaming at me, I just said, oh, Lord, just out of exasperation. Alvin immediately was silenced and, and thought I was praying. And he went into a prayer mode. So I ran with it, and I started praying my advice to him when he was particularly uh, uh, snippy or or prone to lash out at me and yell at me. I, I would give my advice to him in the form of prayer, and and he accepted it that way, and he was calm that way. So uh, it was just a, a real... Uh, ordeal representing him. At one point, I realized that Alvin, for every ounce of suspicion he had about local and state government, there was a pound of hope and believing in the federal government. So I would, uh, I realized that, and I was in my office one day when the secretary walked in and said, the congressman called you. And it was the congressman that had just <laughs> dispatched me in my race for Congress and just a year before, or maybe two years at this point, two years before. And so, uh, you know, Alvin seemed to straighten up a little taller, knowing that I was getting a call from a congressman. And I thought, well, I'll go ahead and call him back while Alvin's here. Maybe it'll impress Alvin. <laughs> maybe Alvin will think that I've got some clout. 
But uh, the congressman gets on the phone, and fortunately, I just had it to my ear and not on speakerphone. And he basically says, keep Alvin Ridley away from my congressional offices. He's frightening the ladies there. So I told him I would pass the word along. I didn't tell him that Alvin was sitting there looking at me. But I walked Alvin outside, and I knew I did not want to deflate him by saying, look, now the federal government is against you. But I did want to try to keep him from getting arrested. So I told him, I said, Alvin, you know, Congressman Deal, Alvin, he hates me so much that he just told me that if you or I ever went to his office again, both arrested and I can't afford to get arrested, Alvin. So help you. If you'll help me figure out how to defend you in this case, when this is all over with, I'll go show you where he lives. <laughs> and that satisfied Alvin. <laughs> and and it was kind of a, a fun way to think of uh but the congressman inspired me. Uh the it was it was kind of insulting to be, you know, uh, at the low end of the totem pole suddenly, and here's the guy that beat me now ordering me to keep my client away from him. I was enthused and suddenly a lot more interested in representing Alvin Ridley. And uh, so I, I would thank the former congressman. He went on to be our governor. And as I say in the book, uh, as governor, he did more for convicted felons than anybody ever has in Georgia, and a lot of people that I'm trying to help as well. Hmm. And as I put in my acknowledgments for that reason, I never told Alvin where he lived. <laughs> well, you know, I uh, when I read the book, I got this. It was like you against you and Alvin against the world. You were going up against uh, the jury, the district attorney, cross-examination, and also the press and law enforcement. Uh, it was pretty much a try to convict Alvin and you had to dissect and take care of any evidence that you had from Alvin's uh, writings from Virginia. I thought that was uh, tremendous the way you went about the case because really it was just you two against the uh, the legal system. Well, and, and one of the judges that was not the judge on the case, uh, you know, he I think out of concern, he uh, said, you know, folks are saying you two deserve each other. And it was kind of a reminder that I how far I had fallen because Alvin's esteem in the community was so low. And now I felt that mine was. But it was the greatest thing that ever happened to me was representing Alvin. It, it gave me a second act in life. Uh, I went on to 25 years of a very busy criminal defense practice, and uh, it allowed me to just do one thing and try to do it well. So I, I feel like I owe Alvin in, in a lot of ways, but but we weren't through yet. Alvin was uh, so difficult to talk to about his wife. He wanted to talk about the county taking his van back in 1984. Now, this is 1998, <laughs> and I'm saying, Alvin, what is them taking your van this is a murder case. We have to talk about your wife. And he reasoned, no, we don't, because I didn't kill her. But they did take my van in 1984. So, I, I, you know, I, I had to understand that Alvin was going to want to talk about that stuff. So it made me decide he should not testify. A jury is going to find this insulting that he wants to talk about them taking his van and not talking about his his loss. Again, not knowing that Alvin was autistic, I fell into the trap of forgetting how literal he is. So, um, so that created a lot of confusion. So at some point... Uh, Toward the end of the trial, after lunch, the only lunch that I'm not sitting at the table with him, Alvin tells me that Jesus appeared to him during lunch and told him he had to testify. 
Mm-hmm. Well, that was Alvin's right to testify, and it's his right not to testify. And I would never try to take that away from him, but I wanted to show him all the pitfalls of accidentally putting his good character into evidence, which would allow the DA to attack him with evidence of bad character, which I had successfully kept out. And it's not even true evidence of bad character, but suspicion of bad character. And so uh, Alvin did take the stand and it was like the most beautiful thing. His testimony was so good and pure, but at the same time, he really did struggle with direct questions. The state literally used his autistic mannerisms against him at trial. For one was a very flat vocal effect that he mm-hmm. made the 911 call with. And the other was uh, that his emotions did not seem to meet the moment that was going on about him. So they made a big deal of that, that he sure didn't act like a guy who had just lost his wife. And then he would break down and cry, and they suspected that that was some type of affectation. And what I've learned a lot from Alvin and reading up about autism a lot is, and it explained so much in the past where Alvin would not get emotional at something that clearly you would think would make someone emotional. And then after a period of time, there would be a release and Alvin would be inconsolable. And then there's some things that trigger uh, him to this day, such as the uh, Roberta Flack song, First Time I Ever Saw Your Face. That was apparently one of Virginia's favorite songs. And he's just he's just in a puddle of tears if ever it comes on. And it comes on sometimes in the restaurants we go to. So uh, I, I think I was just in the right place at the right time in the right state of mind and having suffered just the right number of setbacks to be there for Alvin. And um, since the trial, uh, we go to lunch every week, now multiple times a week. Wow. Um, Alvin is uh, about to turn 82. I have a secretary for the last 15 years who worked with developmentally disabled adults in her previous job. So she slid right into the role of helping helping out with Alvin. And we get him to his VA appointments every few months. Uh, we make sure he manages medications. We make sure he, uh, back when he had his uh, cataract surgeries, my secretary would go and make sure he had the eye drops in his eyes. Uh, so we're, we're just really, we feel blessed to have Alvin in our lives. And this was a guy who just 25 years ago, people thought was the boogeyman. The, the, the autism diagnosis to me with Alvin's permission, he allowed me to share it. It opened up the hearts of our community to where now people will talk to him and, and not be so thrown off by a blank stare from him. Uh, and he can he can be quite charming, especially around women. He was raised right, mm-hmm. and he uh, he's very uh, he's very kind and almost shy around women, but but uh, can get quite charming actually as well. You know, while I was reading the book, uh, you had to go up against Buzz Franklin, district attorney, or and uh, he sort of got frustrated with some of the questions he was asking Alvin. Did you get that sense? That's the sense I got when I was reading the book. I found to uh, he tried to pound and pound him with Let the same you, questions. Everybody gets frustrated when they're questioning Alvin. <laughs> I certainly did, and and I think I, I think I wrote. I thought you know, Buzz is not going to get very far with him in a few hours <laughs> because I haven't been able to get anywhere with him in fifteen. 15- months. And uh, Buzz is a a great guy. He's retired now. 
Um, and he destroyed one of our witnesses that I had not vetted very well. And and so that was the very same day that Jesus came to the rescue and told Alvin to testify, turning what was a horrible day in the morning to a fantastic day in the afternoon. Um, so it's just amazing what happened. Everybody was doing their job. There was a lot we didn't know then about autism and about what causes uh Alvin, what caused Alvin to behave the way he did. I even forgot, and I would get ahead of myself in when he did testify, and I was thinking, man, he's doing so well. I just need to finish strong. <laughs> and I said, Alvin, tell the jurors what you've lost here. And I was hoping he would say the love of my life, the the my best friend. And he looked and he said, oh, uh, the funeral bill. <laughs> I remember that. Yes. And Buzz had a field day with that one in closing because it, it made Alvin sound so cold and detached. And and that's exactly a way that a person on the spectrum can can uh, reveal themselves only because of the way he was processing the questions. Alvin's one of the smartest people I learned that I've ever known in his own way. Uh, he was not considered that in the community at all. He was considered mm-hmm. uh, to be probably somewhat mentally deficient, but he is quite sharp. And uh, I learned a whole lot about autism uh, since his diagnosis, and it just all fits. Everything that happened in the past just fits. Now, there was something, too, that we found out about Virginia, when Alvin did finally let me in his house and I found this shrine that he had made of her writings, they were all her writings. He led me into another room where there were boxes and boxes of her writings, mostly loose leaf, some uh, spiral notebooks, uh, sometimes the inside of a box, just anything that was ready to accept pen or pencil. She found and she utilized and they saved. There were approximately 15,000-plus entries, and that's my estimate, of her life, her just daily life. And as it turned out, uh, I didn't find out until the night before putting my epilepsy expert on the stand that there's a thing called hypergraphia that sometimes people with temporal lobe epilepsy have, and it doesn't affect what they write, but it compels them to write. And she obviously had something causing a compulsion for her to write. And so here's the here's the recipe. Here's a, basically a menu of what they're going to have for supper that night. Here's uh, the cast of the Waltons on TV. Uh, just different things that she wrote out. She had an obsession about the child, then adult star, then a director, then producer, Ron Howard. Mm -hmm. She, she really, I guess, because he always seemed to play wholesome characters. It was just his, his uh, typecast, I guess was a wholesome character, like Opie in the Andy Griffith show or Richie on happy (laughs) day. And, and she just it's loved, one loved him and wrote about him. And uh, I introduced uh, some, some of that into evidence. And I, I was just trying to show the jury, look, she's kind of up on pop culture. Now, it's kind of she was very religious. But also her writings explained why she never wanted to see her family, why she uh, she shared all the conspiracy theories that Alvin said, uh, thought. And I actually think she was the brains behind a lot of his litigation because I found things that she would write down like glossaries and legal terms to help find for Alvin definitions. And she would write them out for him. So she was extremely supportive woman in an extremely unusual situation. And, but seem to be happy. Well, you know, 
having ha- all those writings from Virginia, it doesn't seem like somebody would be held captive for 30 years. So it begs the question, had those items not been there in the house that she wrote, it was amazing items that you could present in court that proved that Alvin did not keep her in captivity in that house. I, I think between that and the Florence Griffith Joyner autopsy, there was plenty of reasonable doubt. But I wanted, since the trial, to go a step further and completely clear Alvin, because uh, it's it's important to me that his name is completely rehabilitated, mm-hmm. and uh, he's he's uh, he's having his best life right now. He's uh, quite a character now. He still doesn't like to bathe. And uh, Carlene and I will get him clothes, and he will wear them until they're literally falling off of him. So, you know, we just have to accept that. Uh, I, I'm very honest in the book about my frustration with him at the time, and I'm very honest about me lashing out at him at one point, immediately feeling badly about it because I felt part of me felt he really can't help the way he is. And, of course, I got my comeuppance when the skunk got under my <laughs> office. And uh, Alvin got to complain about how I smelled for a couple of days because <laughs> he got all, all over the files, all over me. So uh, it, it's it's a personal story as well, Rob, um, about what I was going through uh, in my own family with my father. My father was a wonderful man, a foundryman, worked in Chattanooga Foundry for 40 years. But he was also an alcoholic who uh, suffered mightily from that disease. And uh, this was about the time that we were intervening. And uh, when he showed up at that trial and Alvin said, your daddy's here, I, I I was panicked at first. Because uh, I had not known, at the time, I couldn't think of a thing that happened in the afternoon that my dad was any shape to be at. And uh, he was sober. And that was a uh, quite a uh, quite an event for me because it was the first thing I ever remembered in my life mm-hmm. where he was in good shape to be at. So what was it like um, in the afternoon? Real, that's that is that is a tremendous story. And what was it like um, when they right before the verdict came out? Were you nervous? Were you, you know, you can never. Uh, from what I see, on well, TV, I could tell I, Alvin taking the stand. Uh, you know, I had to worry about Alvin staying in the courtroom. He constantly threatened to bolt from the courtroom, <laughs> and he did once. Thankfully, it wasn't his trial, but I needed him there to vet the jurors. So it was just days before his trial. But he bolted, and and uh, again, Alvin felt the federal government was going to be his salvation. So he went to Rome, Georgia, gave the U.S. Marshals the bums rush, and ran into a federal judge's office screaming about how his lawyer in Ringgold hadn't done anything to knock his case out. <laughs> they were suspicious of him because they said it appeared he had doused himself with gasoline. So you can imagine what's going through your mind if you think somebody has doused themselves with <laughs> gasoline and they're they're rushing by through security and going to a federal judge's office. Well, Alvin explained that his car broke down on the way to Rome, which is about an hour away. And he said the perfumes, as he calls them, of gas got on him. (laughs) Well, that made all the sense in the world. But I, you know, was still angry at him for doing that because I needed him there to look at potential jurors that we were going to be choosing in the next three days. And uh, learned that uh, Alvin had an alternate legal advisor than me. And it was a guy that rode around on his bicycle selling items from catalogs from the basket of his bicycle. He was 
kind of derisively called Salesman Sam. Mm-hmm. And Salesman Sam was countering my legal advice <laughs> to Alvin more than once. So uh, I had to deal with that. And uh, as you as you read, yeah. it was just one wild ride. Yeah, you pretty much had to nip salesman Sam in the bud there just to take care of Alvin. I that was uh, that was extraordinary. So one thing I really liked was the way and when I was reading the book about you know you would buy Alvin lunch or breakfast or you would meet him on the way to the courthouse. I always found that to be very humanizing. And Ringgold's a small town. I grew up in a small town, so everybody knows everybody. I found that to be nice, a nice part of the book as well, that you would take him out to lunch or between sessions or get him breakfast or just walk him, you know, drive him back to his house. I found that to be very, uh, very nice. Well, I was trying to figure him out too, mm-hmm. but I also felt the need to humanize him. I wanted people to see him out doing something normal, having a lunch with, with, with a lawyer, with his lawyer. Of course, Alvin would just... He had this death stare that he could give people that uh, that he did give people. So it made it more difficult. So did you ever think, I know you, you dealt with this case 25 years ago. Did you ever think it was going to get a life, life after the trial? I mean, you've been on uh, crime shows and now you've written a book. Did you ever think it was going to not take a life of his own, but. Well, they would approach me. Uh, Fuji, uh, Snap Judgment came almost 20 years after the trial. And Fuji Television came over 20 years after the trial. So people would read these accounts and they they would follow up and they'd be shocked that Alvin was still alive. <laughs> and so uh, we never got paid for any of it, but Fuji TV offered us $500 each. And I said, look, you know, Definitely cut him a check for 500. I said, take my check, but also put it in his name, but hold it back. And they said, why? And I said, because you said you wanted to get in his house. That's going to be, that's going to have to be something you negotiate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and sure enough, they, they asked Alvin to get in his house. He said, no, I don't think so. And then they pulled out the extra $500 <laughs> and he said, okay, come on in. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, I learned a lot from dealing with Alvin that has helped me in my law practice with other people who obviously have some developmental disability. But I I, I enjoy being with Alvin. And I would if you'd have, if if I had heard myself saying this in the future, I would say, what in the world happened that I'm saying this because we were just like oil and water. But it took me realizing his innocence and the fact that he was kneecapping our defense and making it very difficult to get that across. That and when the congressman called me, that inspired me <laughs> because it, it was it was like a the election again. And I wanted I wanted this time to win. Yeah, you did win all right. And one thing I really enjoyed while I was reading it was actually the courtroom when you were uh, questioning, and then Buzz Franklin, the district attorney, was questioning. I mean, I felt like I was in the courtroom. I thought that was extraordinary, just the the questions, the answers, uh, your emotions at the time. I thought that was – I felt like I was in the courtroom uh, 25 years ago. You did that brilliantly. Well, I've got to admit that all of the sworn testimony and the questions – to the people on the stand, that is directly from trial transcript. Mm. And I very religiously did not alter it because that's somebody's sworn testimony. Now, what it did allow me to do that and going through my file, which is quite voluminous, was I realized what was going on at the time because uh, I found our notes. I found Alvin's notes and my notes. Mm. And during the transcript, I would read myself, I would read about myself asking these very serious questions. And then I would be asking the goofiest questions in the world. And, and I'd look over and they're the questions Alvin wrote down for me to ask. And so, you know, I just to accommodate him, I asked them, but, um, and then I would see on 
the side of a pad where I wrote, stop shaking your leg yeah. or stop <laughs> uh, jingling your change in your pocket or stop riding so fast because Alvin was quite the distraction. Plus, he would not let me control Virginia's writings. He brought them to court in two ancient suitcases with scores of cockroaches. <laughs> and so the judge made us, because we were infesting this courtroom next to his office, no less, with cockroaches, the judge made us change the the, the courtrooms. And we ended up in the old 1939 courthouse grand courtroom. And it was so eerie. And I'm not a ghost person. <laughs> but this was so eerie because that was the last place Virginia had ever been seen mm. in public. September 15, 1970, when they were being wow. evicted from public housing. And it became evident that the eviction was a bit of a sham for her parents trying to flush her out because her parents were at that trial and the judge just stopped the trial and had Alvin's father go get Virginia. They all went back into the judge's chambers and Alvin only could tell me what his father told and Virginia told him that she went back there and said, I'm married. I'm with my husband. That's where I'm supposed to be. And uh, she was very religious and more so than Alvin, I might add. And she, uh, that was enough. And that satisfied her parents who pretty much left them alone after that point. But her father had passed. Her mother was in a, a nursing facility. So when she died, that left her sisters mm -hmm. to pick up the mantle of, you know, and I understand. I've got five sisters. I would be distraught if one just completely disappeared. I don't think I would have let it go very easily. So the book really doesn't have any bad guys. Uh, it's people acting out of their own instinct, uh, people jumping to conclusions. Uh, but I will say that um, the, the people that in the book read are Alvin's enemies. Quite frankly, they're his friends now. Mm. They... Uh, you know, the, the coroner, she had him over for Christmas dinner on wow. Christmas. And uh, I took him there because he got lost. So I took him there and told him, I said, Alvin, you don't, this is their Christmas. She was awful kind to invite you, but you don't need to stay more than 90 minutes. And boy, on minute 91, I called and he was already out the door. So fast hmm. that uh, the former coroner was preparing people that used to be deathly afraid of him and who, who that history affected them and affected their testimony. And now, because I think of the autism diagnosis people are a lot more accepting of Alvin and people are a lot more warm to him. And then inversely, Alvin no longer or very rarely gives that uh, blank stare anymore. He's, he's very kind to people and he's very, uh, he, he'll, uh, he's, he's warmer. What do you, is that courtroom uh, courthouse still up that the one you did the trial 25 years ago, is that still, Still up? Do you ever go, when you yes. ever go back, do you ever yeah. think of that trial when you go there dealing with oh. other cases? <laughs> Both courtrooms. I think of the, <laughs> when I'm, I'm often in the windowless box of the 1982 courtroom that we filled with roaches. And, uh, and I, sometimes, especially if I'm in there alone, I, I, I just shake my head and I think, I can't believe <laughs> this happened. It's like, a, it's like a different chapter. It's like, like, like seems like forever ago that you did the trial. That that's just fascinating. So uh, John Meacham, a New York Times bestselling author, called Zenith Man a good story with kinds of twists and turns that will make readers think it's a great fiction. Except it all happened. That's a great way to put it. John Meacham, it's on the front part of the cover of the book, and uh, Zenith Man again is death, love, and redemption in a Georgia courtroom. 
McCracken Poston Jr. is the author. And uh, Ringgold's a small town, so everybody knows everybody. You said everybody seems to be not everybody seems to be warmed up to Alvin now. So, what was it like after that trial twenty five years ago? Well, uh, I said when we came out on the courthouse steps, because I, you know, I didn't have anything prepared, but there were press and there were a crowd down on the lawn. And, and I, I said, ladies and gentlemen, I give you Alvin Ridley, a free man and an innocent man. And then I added, and a man who's ready to rehabilitate his name in this community. And I immediately began working on Alvin on how to accomplish that to hilarious results in our first uh, encounter up at the uh, hamburger <laughs> joint. Uh, but um, Alvin, uh, you know, Alvin hasn't changed. I mean, he has in a way he's, he's less tense. He's, he's more uh, easier to deal with, but I think that has to do with how we all act toward him now. And so I, I think anybody with someone with autism in their family, they'll think I'm an idiot because of all the months mm-hmm. that this book covers that I wasn't getting that. But, but you have to remember, this was 1997 and 1998. Nobody was really talking about autism in adults then. They they were talking about it in children, sure, certainly, and they were spending a lot of time trying to find something or someone to blame for it. But in fact, we've had autistic uh, humans since probably humankind began. And some of our greatest contributors have been people with Asperger's or people on the spectrum that were so, they had the ability to laser focus on an issue without being clouded like my mind would be trying to keep up with stuff. Alvin was like that. He was laser focused. Uh, uh, he was also a bit obsessive and mm-hmm. and uh, and grudge holding. And a lot of people with uh, autism in their lives and their families, they recognize these things. And I've had people tell me that have heard the podcast, the, the recent ones, which where we share the autism. Um, they they get it. Well, uh, McCracken, Poston Jr., I want to thank you very much for joining me. I know you're going to be a very busy person. The book is on sale February 20th, and uh, I know you're going to be very busy, and I, I really appreciate you, and I'm honored that you come on my podcast just to squeeze out some time because I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed reading the book, and uh, I could not thank you enough for coming on. Rob, please review it. And, and if uh, your uh, listeners please get the book and review it because that's I'm learning that's the mother's milk of uh, publishing <laughs> is reviews. Yes, it is. Well, thanks again for coming on. Thank you.